teenage boy drove his date to a dark and deserted lover's lane for a makeout session. He turned on the radio for mood music, leaned over to whisper in the girl's ear, and began kissing her. Minutes later, the mood was broken when the music suddenly stopped mid-song. After a moment of silence, the announcer's voice came on, warning in an ominous tone that a convicted murderer had just escaped from the state insane asylum, which happened to be located within a half a mile of where they were parked, and urging that anyone who notices a man wearing a stainless steel hook in place of his missing right hand should immediately report his whereabouts to the police. The girl became frightened and asked to be taken home. The boy, feeling bold, locked all of the doors instead and, assuring his date they would be safe, attempted to kiss her again. She became frantic and pushed him away, insisting that they leave. Relenting, the boy peevishly jerked the car into gear and spun its wheels as he pulled out of the parking space. When they arrived at the girl's house, she got out of the car and, reaching to close the door, began to scream uncontrollably. The boy ran to her side to see what was wrong, and there, dangling from the door handle, was a bloody hook. Welcome to Horror Academy. I'm Alexandria Youngray with my lovely co-host, Sunshine Ballon. Hey! <laughs> Ta-da! Intro. Completed. I love it. Hey. I have to read you a beautiful story. Are you ready for my beautiful story that I want to read you? I'm so ready for your beautiful story. All right. Man and girl go out to drive under moonlight. They stop at on at a side of road. He turned to his girl and say, baby, I love you very much. What is it, honey? Our car is broken down. I think the engine is broken. I'll walk and get some more fuel. Okay, I'll stay here and look after our stereo. There have been news report of stereos being stolen. Good idea. Keep the doors locked no matter what. I love you, sweaty. <laughs> so the guy left to get full for the car. After two hours, the girl say, Where is my baby? He was supposed to be back by now. Then the girl hear a scratching sound and voice say, Let me in. The girl doesn't do it, and then after a while, she goes to sleep. The next morning, she wakes up and finds her boyfriend still not there. She gets out to check, and man door, hand hook, car door! <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. This is my favorite thing that's ever happened. <laughs> So is this where all the uh, meme results came in when I was searching yeah, for the story? That's all the memes. Uh, can can you go ahead and explain that one to me, please? Uh, I mean, okay, so you know the, like, like this if you cry every time? It's just, like, a, a badly written version of the urgen, urban legend. And is this, like, so it's intentionally badly written to fit within, like, the structure of the meme? No, no, it was, the meme is this badly written so somebody wrote, like, retold it badly. That's I don't what I was know wondering if it was on the... purpose, but that's how the meme became the meme. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't like, okay, okay, okay. Weird. All right. Yeah. But that's man, man, man hand hook car door. Man hand hook car door. Man, man door hand hook car door. Yeah. It's very okay. important. <laughs> it's my favorite. <laughs> All right. That's the... That's the urban legend that we're talking about today, kind of. Yes, no, definitely, very much, is the story of the 
hooked man and the door and the car and the lover's lane. And the lover's lane. Which actually was inspired by a real story. I would be the first person to visit a lover's lane if given the opportunity, but I've never felt like they were a good idea. Really? Like, this is a shady back alley where somebody goes to make out, like... I mean, it's not like a back alley. It's usually, like, you go into the woods and then you find this unpaved road. Yeah. Yeah. You've never done that? But, like, well, I have, but not in the sense of, like, a commonly used back dirt road. Right. That to me is creepy and just asking for trouble because like, you know, people know that's what it's for and they know they can find you in a vulnerable position. Right. Like I've had the reason that that fear exists in you today is because of this story that I'm about to tell you. Great. I got fears from stories. I don't even know. Yep. Uh, (laughs) No, it's (sighs) no, but it's true. It's valid. Like, you know, I have no problem. Like, you know, camping's my jam. I have no problem making out in the woods. What freaks me out is the idea of a of a back road of a des- of like an isolated place that is a known spot for people to go to and do that sort of thing. Like, not to say like not to like you just I just feel like you're asking to be victimized or asking for something bad to happen. Like, don't do that. Well, I mean, I don't know. Everyone who's ever been a teenager has parked, right? You know, not me. You've never parked. Not as a teenager. <laughs> okay, but, like, as an adult. As an adult, there was no point. Okay, I had an apartment. You're right. Like, I just have, like, no. Like, the closest Never thing to parking that I have participated in is, like, making out while camping. <laughs> that is so not the same thing. Yeah, I know. So I'm just saying, it's so the closest. Weird. That is nuts. Yeah, I parked all but the time, that's but kinda, I had a car. Right, and that's, and that's, I'm sure that affects it, but that's exactly kind of my point, is that, like, I felt safer trying to, like, sneak boys into my apartment than I ever did... <laughs> Like, finding somewhere secluded outside to make out. Like, that's scary. I always felt kind of safe in my car. And I was never, I was never, like, I don't know. I did. I did go, like, weird off-road, middle-of-nowhere locations. So. Yeah, I feel like it's a little sketchy. It is. It is kind of sketchy. (laughs) But the only reason it's sketchy is because of this story. All right. So I also wanted to tell this story because it inspired one of my favorite movies ever in the history of ever. So you know that I like slasher films a lot, right? Yes, I'm aware that you love slasher films. Okay, so in 1976, a movie came out called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. 1976 is two years after 1974, meaning the year that Black Christmas and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, which Uh are kind of considered proto-slashers. Okay, proto-slasher. Yeah. Can you define this term for me? (laughs) Widely considered the first mainstream slasher is 1978's John Carpenter's Halloween. Okay. 1974, Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out the same year. Those fit a slasher genre, but I guess they just weren't, you know, box office, like, tear down the wall. Right. They weren't big enough to create the genre in and of themselves for some reason. They didn't popularize the genre, I guess. Right, right, okay. But the genre becoming popularized is what created the genre, right? I mean, kind of. I mean, arguably... I, I would be happy to do a history of slashers at some point on this show. Because it's a very interesting story and you can watch it as it evolves. Because mm-hmm. it actually started in like the 60s and 70s. Well, okay, no. There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff. Okay, no. no yeah. <laughs> Don't go down into... that rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sometimes my questions are just too good. They're too good. You're too good. I'm too incisive. I'm too incisive. I'm sorry. I will try and dial that back a little bit. 
Yeah. So anyway, no. 1976, Town That Dreaded Sundown came out. It is kind of considered a proto-slasher. So in The Town That Dreaded Sundown, I, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but essentially the bad guy is a dude with, like, a shitty white bag over his head with eyes cut out. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I picked that up just from the cover. Right. That's fair. <laughs> and then my favorite slasher is Friday the 13th. I love Friday the 13th so much. I think because it's the slasher that I started with. Okay. That makes sense. I think nostalgia. it's a nostalgia thing. As per usual. It's just so good. It's just so fun. It's so campy and ridiculous. It's good. It's very good. Also, Jason Voorhees is, like, legitimately scary, but, like, so is fucking Mike Myers and Freddy Krueger and all of the everybody's. The second Friday the 13th, when Jason Voorhees makes his appearance, he is wearing this, like, fucking potato sack with eyes cut out of his, yeah. his eye holes. A nice little homage to the town yep. that read Sundown. Yep. So, so this, this one story is actually a really interesting introduction to oh my god so much of what we know uh as horror these days it's it's a it's a it's the seed for a fuck ton of current horror mythos as long as they're slasher based or in general in general because i mean the hook certainly has shown up in other slashers like uh, i know what you did last summer the monster bad guy person slasher super villain Slasher supervillain. Slasher supervillain. The slasher in uh, in that film had a hook for a hand. Really? Mm-hmm. And I know what you did last summer. Really? Mm-hmm. I think I get... Oh, okay. I get... Never mind. I don't even want to admit this. Never mind. You were mixing it up with Scream? Yep. That oh. definitely. Most 110%. <laughs> in all fairness, okay, I know what you did last summer came out when I was six years old. And that was actually during a time of my life when my brother used to get in trouble for uh, letting me watch such films with him and just making me cover my eyes when <laughs> the bad parts happen. That's hilarious. <laughs> so sometimes that kind of stuff is a little bit of a blur. And I'm just like, I don't know. It was all terrible. I it was all horrifying. completely forgive you because they're in the same genre. They're in the self-aware 90s slashers. Mm-hmm which are Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer are the big box office ones that everybody knows. Yeah. Where essentially people know the don't have sex, don't do drugs, don't party, the virgin always wins. They know the final girl. They know all of the like slasher tropes. Right. They just happen to exist in a slasher. Okay, so back on track. We have quite a few stories, mainly the hooked man and the... The image of the man with the bag over his head with the eyes cut out Mm -hmm. from this story. So I'm going to bring you back to Texarkana, Arkansas, slash Texas. Slash Texas. (laughs) Slash Texas. Still exists today, by the way, but we're going back. Pulling up the thing. Okay. Texarkana is a city straddling the border of Bowie County, Texas, and Miller County, Arkansas. So State Line Avenue cuts it in half. And it's just above Louisiana. So it's an actual town that exists in two counties, in two counties and two states. Yep. yep. Man, that must be, like, a legal nightmare. I'm sure it is. Like, sure oh. it's a gigantic clusterfuck, but they make it work, I guess. It's there. It was founded in 1870, 1873 at the junction of two railroads. So that's the reason that that's where it was, mm-hmm. is it was a railroad town. Okay. 
That's a reason. Also, like lumber and army supplies and that right. sort of thing. So it probably didn't matter so much that it was straddling two states and two counties when it was a railroad stop or a lumber uh-huh. transfer station, but once it became a town, it probably became more problematic. Yeah. And Texarkana is not Texarkansas, and that's because it's a culmination of Tex from Texas, Ark from Arkansas, and Louisiana. Oh, for the canna. So it's Texarkana. Oh, my word. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So I, I, I might be jumping the gun here, but I have a question. Okay. Did creepy shit happen here in the long, long ago when the town was becoming a thing? Or is the appearance of creepy shit potentially something that could be attributed to it being a jurisdictionally tricky area? Or does that even come up at all? Uh, the jurisdiction does come up a little bit. And I'll kind of get into that. Because, so basically, before like, oh god, even now, um, cops suck at communicating with each other. Yeah. And they used to, like, compete with each other. To the extent that they would fuck up cases. Wow. Way to go, guys. By not communicating with each other. Now, the cops kind of did it right in this case, and all, like, kind of came together to Mm -hmm. work together. But I think partially because it was such a big clusterfuck of a thousand different jurisdictions, I think that the case didn't go as well as it could have. Right. That makes sense. So we're we're not going all the way back to 1870s. We are going back to 1946. So put yourself there. World War II has just ended. Got the first meeting of the UN. Film noirs coming out. Ooh, I love me some film noirs. Pinup is a thing. Their fucking hair is cute as shit. Hair's on point, guys. It's great. Hair's on point. Swing, swing music is a big deal. Pruners. Rock and roll's not quite a thing, but it's like getting there. You still have the blues everywhere. Billy Holiday's a thing. So. So are you there, 1946? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm feeling it. I'm okay. feeling early 1940s. Just sexy hair. Real good. Got good those nice hair. pin waves. Oh, yeah. That's when pin waves were a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, so. I can picture that. I'm about it. It was the, it was the like, kind of big, but not in the gross 80s way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Good hair. The, the nice, the nice big. Substantially more effort than I am willing to put into my appearance. Right. So in the industrial part of town... You know, the railroads, the lumber, you've got, like, transients and people coming in and out. And that actually is, like, kind of a bad part of town. Like, it's not like murders and violence and crimes are unheard of. However, you've got these nice neighborhoods that are this picturesque 1940s, like, pre-50s, they didn't lock their doors. Right. And this is kind of why this story got so big, is because it's... It shocked everyone. Right. It's extra shocking in that context. Mm -hmm. So we're in the late winter, early part of the year, February 22nd. It's a weekend. 25-year-old insurance salesman, James Jimmy B. Hollis, and his girlfriend, 19-year-old Mary Jean Larry, are on a double date with Jimmy's brother, Bob, and his girlfriend. And I just put this in because I thought it was kind of fun. They went to see House of Dracula. Oh, that fun. <laughs> I just like that they went to see a horror movie. Before the worst night of their lives. I know. It's really a terrible story. <laughs> Good job laughing at it, Alex. Thanks. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm so insensitive. So the couple dropped off Bob and his date. And then 
because he was living in the Arkansas part and Mary Jean lived in the Texas part. She lived in Hook, Texas. So they dropped off Bob and then on their way back to Hook, Texas, they stopped at a lover's lane. Ooh. You know, for, for talking. For talking. Yeah, only talking. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. Everything's fine, Mom. Although, although apparently back then, like, because it was like an everybody knows everyone kind of town, having a private conversation was kind of like a thing to be desired. Right. So maybe there was more talking than we're considering. Although they were a couple. So there was also definitely making out. Yeah. Well, a 25 year old and a 19 year old, like, come on. There was parking. Yeah. They were making out. Yeah. They How much did they really time. have to talk about in Texarkana in the 1940s? Um, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm already grown up. I want to have a million babies. Yeah. There you go. So conversation done. Ta-da! <laughs> that's how that's how my conversations happened when I used to go parking. Good for you. Way to brag. That is not true. Mm-mm. That is not true. Anyway, so it's just before midnight. Jimmy and Mary Jean had been parked on Lover's Lane for about 10 minutes. They hear a knock on the car window. A flashlight blinds the couple. And then they make out that he's holding a pistol. <gasps> now, in quite a few of the things that I found, they referred to the pistol as, a, as an automatic. And that confused the hell out of me. So I went and I did a bunch of... That would be... In that era, wouldn't that be like a Tommy gun? If it was an automatic, (laughs) but roughly the size of a pistol? Like, isn't that what that is? So I researched... So I researched some old guns. And I figured... I figured out what they probably meant. So back then... Actually, in like the early 1900s... They had just invented the hammerless pistol... Which meant not that you'd fire and it would just fire. It meant that you would fire and you wouldn't have to pull the trigger back again. You wouldn't have to cock back the hammer. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, the trigger. It's okay. I'm good at talking about guns. It's okay, Alex. Let me let me translate. <laughs> Thanks. So back then, because they didn't have automatics yet, the semi-automatic that we know now would have been an automatic to them. Right. Okay. So that's, I think, what they meant by automatic. By automatic, because you don't have to chunk back that. Yeah. yeah. And in most of these stories, he uses a thirty-two Colt. Oh. So the flashlight blinds them, and they see that he's holding a pistol. They actually never see his face, because the man is wearing a white mask with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I feel like the white mask is even creepier than the... And and this, this is probably from the enculturation that I've already had due to stories like this. But um, someone wearing a, like, makeshift, like, pillowcase or burlap sack mask is way creepier than somebody in a ski mask. And I think for me, it's because there's a heavy implication of, like, psychological instability and backwoods weirdness. Oh, yeah. Well, and you can get a lot of psychological horror from this first case because the dude is very clearly unstable. And this, okay, this is one of my favorite parts. Jimmy tells the masked man that he has the wrong guy. He's, the, masked, he's like, the masked man isn't looking for Jimmy, Jimmy, is what Jimmy is saying? Jimmy tells the masked man, you got the wrong guy. I'm not who you're looking for. Not I me, love bro. it. I love it. <laughs> it's like It's just like such a good response. Kind of speaks to the era doing. of like gangster crime though, right? Like. Maybe he legitimately thought that. He's like, oh no, I've heard about what y'all are up to in New York. Like, it ain't me. (laughs) I don't think that's what he was going for. I think he was more like, 
you know, you don't want to fuck with me. Like, you know, I don't have any money. I'm not. I'm not a good target. But I just like that that's what he said. Got the wrong man. So the masked man tells the couple that he won't kill them if they do what what he says. He tells them to get out of the car, and they do. And then he tells he tells Jimmy to take off your fucking britches. <laughs> that's like a that's like a methed out Winnie the Pooh bear threat. Take off your fucking britches. Right? Isn't it so weird? Also, like you know, nineteen forties talk. Nobody would ever say britches now, right? Because britches sounds too innocent. Unless you're a World War II war vet who somehow is still alive, you do not say britches. Mm-hmm. Mary Jean begs him to do as the man says, and he does. He takes off his pants. As soon as he drops Trow, the man hits him over the head with his pistol. He hits him so... With a 38? 32. With a 32. He hits him so loud, so hard that the sound is loud enough that Mary actually thinks that he, the gun had gone off. And in reality, he had cracked his skull three times. Holy shit. So Jimmy drops because he's unconscious. Think about this, too. Mary is on the uh, Texas side of Texarkana? Yes. Mary is a Texan... If you don't think she knows what the sound of a thirty-eight going off is, <laughs> like, that must have been loud. Thirty-two. Thirty-two. God damn it. Okay, I have a confession. I, I opened this drawer randomly, right? I'm in, I'm in my grandparents' basement, and I opened this drawer just because you do. You get, like, curious hands when you're sitting. And I found my grandpa's registration for his Smith & Weston. Mm. And it's a thirty-eight, and so I just and it's and it's so old. You just keep thinking thirty-eights. Yeah, and it's it's probably from that same era. It's a model number fifteen. Oh, nineteen sixty. A little bit newer. A little, a little bit newer. newer. But just a yeah, little. I I'd seen it, and I just I can't get it out of my head now. Oh man, maybe the next story I should tell is the Winchester House. Do it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so loud. I mean, well, I mean, he hits him so hard that he cracks his skull. Right, that's bad. That's, that's, that's impressive. pretty loud. That's loud hard. noise, and she thinks that he shot the gun. So Jimmy goes unconscious, and the man tells Mary Jean to run. So she starts running, and she's having trouble running because she's in heels. Uh, she starts running for a ditch, and he yells at her to not run that way. He wants her to run down the road. Wait, so is it the boyfriend or the like creepy murderer dude who tells her don't run to the ditch, run down the road? It's the creepy murderer dude. The boyfriend is knocked out. That's oh right. That's so messed up. That's so weird. Why oh, would he yeah. want to run down the road? It's so crazy. Why? He's Why? like he's like now run and she starts running and she starts running to the ditch and he's like no don't run that way run this way, and then she doesn't run well because of her heels and so he catches up with her really easily. He yells at her Why are you running? And she says Because you told me to, and he calls her a liar. That's insane. He is very clearly fucking nuts and terrifying. Can we even speculate as far as like what he wanted out of that situation? Like, I have no idea. I have why no tell idea. Maybe like, he was having some kind of fucked up episode, but like maybe he had discovered PCP. Right. Well, so my thing is like telling her to run down the road to me implies that he wanted her to be able to get as far away as possible, right? Running to the ditch, he'd be able to catch her more easily, right? Because she's in heels. Like, I think he was just fucking with her. Right. I think he was doing like a cat and mouse thing where he'd let her go and let her run for a little bit. I know, run for the road, you can get away. And then just like, ugh, ugh. Yeah, and just being controlling. Because, you know, that's like the whole power thing. Yeah. It's not about 
sex or money. It's not power. It's not what they call a sexual sadist, though. Like somebody who's not necessarily uh, straight up going to like physically rape somebody, but that they derive that sexual pleasure from being sadistic and exerting that kind of control. Is that the kind of the well, idea? Later, there was a, a shrink who actually did talk to the police about his theories about him, this murderer mm-hmm. who we still don't know who he is. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, which adds to the spook. And is probably another reason that it got super famous is because it's fucking terrifying. It's unsolved. But he definitely, he told everyone, he told the police that he thinks that the man is a sexual sadist. Okay. So I was, okay, I was right going down that path. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. So he catches up with her after he tells her to run and he knocks her down and then he sexually assaults her with the barrel of his gun, Mm. which... No. I I remember in one of the documentaries that I found that kind of talks about this. It doesn't go into the whole story, but it definitely talks about, you know, the hook man. Yeah. There was a, I think it was a horror expert or an urban legends expert who said, this is most likely where the hook story comes from. Okay. Is, is this foreign object, foreign metal object and the assault and the horror of it. Even though it was a gun versus a uh, pointed weapon. Mm-hmm. Hmm. that's that's kind of the best theory is that this is because the the lover's lame thing is consistent but the hook for the hand isn't and so the best theory is when he sexually assaulted her with his gun this whole terrifying foreign metal object became but if you just say that he has a gun that's not nearly as scary right and was it 1946 when this was Mm mm-hmm yep so here's something that I find interesting um, that maybe is totally off base, but I think is worth mentioning. Uh, World War II ended the year before. And so regardless yeah. of whether the assault was with a gun or with a bladed op, like you're going to have an influx of people coming back looking scary. Right. Uh, oh yeah. Right. So teenagers are going to be basically people with their arms and legs missing right i mean world war the, the gap between world war one and world war two wasn't that massive but at the same time this is when you're going to have teenagers really experiencing people coming home and having things like hooks for hands or missing a leg or having disfigured faces i hadn't even thought of that but you're right no and that actually hasn't been brought up in any of the things that i've found but i think that's a really good theory is that in this time we had a lot of world war ii vets coming home because literally the war had ended months prior yeah. And, and so you will have a lot of vets coming home that have disfigurements mm-hmm. from the war. And, and I do think that, which you know, thinking of the zeitgeist, I, I think that that definitely could have become a part of the story. Right, regardless of how the, the crime or assault actually takes place, what's going to be terrifying people in, that, in the moment, in that time in their daily lives, would be things like, you know, some 30-year-old man coming home to his tiny little hometown in Texas or wherever and having a hook for a hand. Right. Like that's a thing. Or a 20 year old child. boy. Yeah. 20 year old child boy. More likely for sure. More likely. Yeah. No, that's a, I think that's a really good idea. Um, Yay. Me and astute observations. Good job. (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's probably one of the more, like horrific parts of this whole case is the sexual assault with the gun. Yeah. He threatens to kill her and she actually tells him to go ahead and kill her because she'd be better off dead. It's pretty brutal. It's pretty hardcore. Very sad. She basically, she basically said that it was 
kind of cruel of him to leave her alive. I mean, again, though, right? Think about the time and what oh, yeah. chastity I mean, and virginity didn't even meant. Talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be, there's no way she wasn't deeply injured too. So not only, not only is this whole issue. Oh yeah, of, he beat her up along with oh, that. Oh, that's not really what I meant. Yeah, I meant more like. <laughs> Think looking at the visual structure, like looking at the structure of a barrel of a gun. Mm. Yeah. Well, and also that's fucking horrifying. Like, like it's not just somebody putting a gun to your head. It's somebody putting a gun to your yeah. sex organs inside of your body. That is disgustingly invasive. Right. Imagine the emotional trauma of rape compounded mm-hmm. by the fact that like they could shoot you at any moment. Yeah. This was a really, really horrifying and brutal and awful assault. For some reason, he leaves her alive, though. The best theory is that he saw headlights of a car and it scared him off. But he didn't kill the man. He just left him unconscious, right? So mm-hmm. if yeah, he but, really I mean, basically, had... it was like he knocked out the man and went and chased after the woman and then assaulted the woman. And then he left. Right. So I guess my question is, like, think about what his main goal actually is. If his goal is to murder people, he could have easily shot. Right. The man to incapacitate. He also him. might not have like ramped up to murder yet. Right. Okay. Earlier in his. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And she manages to pick herself up and run for help. She gets to the nearest house and wakes the owners by pounding on the door. They call the police. Both Mary Jean and Jimmy are taken to the hospital. Jimmy takes a fair bit to recover and then he moves out of town. Well, you would. Yeah, and I I couldn't find that much information on Mary Jean, which is really disappointing. So I don't know what happened to her afterwards, but she was obviously still alive because she was still talking to police and press and yada yada. Yeah. Um, And then after they both recovered, the two had differing accounts describing the assailant. So Mary Jean described a light-skinned black man who wore a white mask with holes cut out for eyes and mouth. And she said he she knew he was black because of the way he growled the curse words at her. So the way he spoke, she thought yeah. he was black. Which kind of makes me think, like, this is 1940s. Everybody's super racist. So the fact that you know he's black because he talked like a black man means that he might not be black. Well, and I think you're right that the uh, sort of inherent level of racism that existed in that era, I think if somebody's going to, uh, if a white female, if a, if a young white woman is going to experience a really severe trauma, that the enculturation that she would have experienced would pretty much immediately lead her to go, oh, it was a black man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I, I absolutely, I want to believe the victim and I absolutely believe that she was assaulted. But I mean, this is, this is the 1940s up until the 1950s or 1960s, a black person was getting lynched in the South without any legal repercussions every three days. Holy shit. And, and I mean like example, Emmett Till, who may or may not have whistled at a white woman. Yeah. Like, I just, I think that it's really easy for a white woman to be assaulted sexually and for it to make more sense to her psychologically for it to have been a black man in the right, 1940s. That's, yes, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah. It makes, yeah. So, like, it could have been a black man. We don't know who did it, but I don't think that he sounded like a black man is a good reason to assume that it was a black man. Right. Like, okay. So you're a lawyer in court. Would it really hold up for someone to say their face, like, you know, they're presumably wearing pants and a shirt and I know they're black because the way they talk, like they're wearing a mask, they're wearing full clothing. 
and I know the race of my assailant because of the way they spoke? Like, would that really hold up in court? I mean, she could say that, but she would be really impeachable by the opposing counsel. Because the opposing counsel would be like, you were scared, and he was wearing a mask, and yada yada. All of the arguments we were just barely making, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't... I don't know how it would go over because the jury is really dumb when it comes to listening to eyewitnesses. (laughs) And also, Jimmy describes a tanned white man. Which makes more sense, right? I think so. White guys be crazy. (laughs) So yeah, differing accounts, Jimmy describes a tan white man, and he doesn't recall seeing a mask, but he also admits that he didn't get a great look with the flashlight in his eyes and then how he got immediately knocked the fuck out. Well, it's nighttime, too. It's nighttime. The flashlight is blinding. I mean, you've had cops pull you over at night and they shine the flashlight on your face and, like, blind you. Yeah. The police had a hard time believing such a strange event. It was just so weird. And, I mean, good lord, the police still don't believe rape victims. They insisted that it must have been a jealous ex and Mary Jean was lying to protect him and knew who he was. That, like, a jealous ex assaulted her current boyfriend, and so she made up this whole story about being chased down and violated by a gun to protect him? No, they assumed that she had a jealous boyfriend, and so her current boyfriend was assaulted, and she was assaulted, but she didn't want to get him in trouble. So she made up the mask and the black man or whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what they were. That's, like, marginally better? It's marginally better, but it's still pretty fucked up. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, this is the first event. They didn't think anything of it. It's not like crime was unheard of, and they had nothing to connect it to. It made news, but it was quickly forgotten. So it's March 23rd. It's a month later. Richard Griffin was a 29-year-old war vet. War vets! Told you! War vets! Yeah. No, I mean, World War II just ended. He had been a CB, which is the construction battalion, so okay. CB. Uh, for the u.s navy so c as in c-a-e-a it was like a double pun oh how lovely hey go u.s military puns (laughs) anyway now he was a carpenter slash painter and his girlfriend was pollyann moore who was 17 and an early high school graduate Woo, go pollyann yeah right she seems like kind of a badass they were also you know giant age gap but i I'm not allowed to judge that. <laughs> but you can if you want. <laughs> I'll just judge a little bit. It's okay. Judge it a little bit. It's the 40s. Yeah. It's fine. It's the 40s. Yeah, it was considered fine. They had been dating for like six weeks. Pollyanna just moved to Texarkana. She worked at an army depot. And the couple was spending the day together. So they were seen together at lunch. And then again later at dinner... They were on a double date with Richard's sister. One thing that I found called her Emily and another thing called her Eleanor, but... Wait, Holly Ann called Emily Ann Eleanor? No, no, no. One of the the resources that I found called Richard's sister Emily and another resource called her Eleanor. It literally does not matter. She was not a victim in this crime. It doesn't matter, yeah. (laughs) So it was Richard's sister and her boyfriend, Uh, which is only interesting because double date with a sibling, double date with a sibling. Oh, that is way interesting. Is there, mm, mm, is that the case? I mean, it's just a thing. It's, I, 
I think that because this case is so mulled over that we found weird well, and nuances. So is that a thing that's consistent throughout no. all of the victims? No. Okay. Because, like, also I feel like uh, sibling chaperone dates were a lot more common. Like, my grandpa oh, yeah. tells stories about dating before he met, before he married yeah. my grandma. And it sounds like it was pretty common for, like, him and his brother, uh, his his younger brother, to go on double dates and be each other's chaperones and stuff. Yeah. Like, that was a common... I feel like maybe that was a more common practice. Yeah. So I don't think it was specifically something that was part of the murderer's MO. Okay. I think it was more of something that was common in the era. I would agree. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Richard and Pollyanne went on their date. They spent the day together. But they also ended their night on Lover's Lane. Everything from this point on is pretty speculation because they did not make it through the night. Oh. They were found the next morning by a passing motorist uh, who thought they were sleeping on the side of the road. He came. He found Richard kneeling between the front seats. His head was resting on his crossed hands and his pants pockets had been turned inside out. He had been shot twice in the back of the head. Pollyanne was found fully clothed sprawled across the back seat she had been shot in the back of the head as well uh pollyann's body was removed before it could be definitively determined if she had been sexually assaulted removed they um they took the body away the the i think for embalming okay so they just moved on to the funeral services before they were able to conclusively decide if she'd been assaulted or not mm-hmm. bummer Yep. So the theory is that she probably had been. Probably. They later found out that she had been killed on a blanket in front of the car and then was later placed back inside the car. So the assumption is that she was essentially staged there. Right. That makes sense. It sounds, I mean, to have somebody shot in the back of the head, like just her boyfriend, uh, Richard, to have him kneeling down between the two front seats with his head on his hands. That's a very odd position to be shot in the back of the head from. That's that from from that moment it sounds staged. I imagine that he was executed. But okay, but think about that. Think about I mean, even like a big old car like a Plymouth or something that would have existed then. Think about Oldsmobile, I think. Okay, Oldsmobile. Think about telling somebody to kneel down between the two front seats with their head on their hands and then reaching a gun in to to shoot them in the back of that like that's a very awkward right that's a weird way to execute somebody like yeah okay he was executed but that is a bizarre way to do it like as soon as you started describing it i was like oh that sounds staged as shit. right yeah and and the next murder is also pretty staged well no kind of parts of it anyway it, it's it definitely seems staged so we don't know if pollyann was sexually assaulted or not but it's a safe assumption it seems likely because her body was very clearly staged. It had rained the night before, so the only clues left behind were a bloody patch of sand 20 feet in front of the car, and they found a 32 cartridge shell that was found inside a blanket inside the car. Presumably the blanket that she had been murdered on. Another 32. Yeah. Because of the location, Texas City Police, Arkansas City Police, the Department of Public Safety, sheriffs from Miller and Cass Counties, the FBI, and later the Texas Rangers all got involved. Texas Rangers! I don't know why I'm, I'm rooting for them because they're Rangers. Um, you might continue, maybe. Oh, no. <laughs> so. Oh, over... I picked a bad team, didn't I? <laughs> oh, shit. It's not the best team. Oh, it's probably no. the worst team of all of the teams. No! <laughs> so, over the next five days, uh, nearly 200 subjects were questioned, and investigators followed hundreds of useless tips 
and false leads. So it gets so bad that law enforcement requests the public not to spread baseless rumors in an article published in the Texarkana Gazette, which is actually something that I read a few stories from. Oh, really? The Texarkana Gazette is still a thing? Yeah. That's Good job, cool. Texarkana Gazette. Right? Google. So subscribe to them because they're important. They have longevity. You want you want a news source with longevity. Go yeah. with the Texarkana Gazette. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, they also offer a monetary reward for information, but that leads to oh, bunk tips. Right. That's probably a that's part of the problem, I'm sure. Don't offer people money if you don't want to hear what they have to say. <laughs> well, I don't know. People got scared. <laughs> they started giving it was it was a thing. All right. It's April thirteenth. It's been three weeks. Paul Martin. Is a 16 year old. Oh, no. Paul. Paul. Paul Martin is a 16-year-old high school senior who had moved to Kilgore, Texas two years prior. But on this day, he wanted to get together with a friend he had known from kindergarten, Betty Jo Booker. Betty Jo Booker was a 15-year-old junior, and she was kind of the perfect girl. She was smart, she was pretty, she was popular, she was talented. She was a near straight-A student a music officer in the school band, and she played alto saxophone in Jerry Atkinson's Rhythm Airs. Go Betty Joe, Get it. She was a badass. She also wanted to grow up to be a medical tech, so she had... Is Betty Joe gonna die? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Why? Why you gotta go after the good ones? I know. She's kind of, she's kind of like literally the perfect girl, which sort of and makes like, her the poster gearing child up, of the story. Gearing up to be a modern woman, like... I'm she also was education. the youngest of the victims. She was 15. Ouch. Yeah. That's like, that's, that's, I think at 15, that's when you're right on the cusp of like the assailant. They could either be like mistaken about your age or they could have like a child issue. Well, I looked at, you know, I, I saw the crime scene photos of these two. They look like babies. You know how some teenagers kind of look old and some teenagers look like literally look yeah. like actual children? She was an actual Betty child. Betty Jo and Paul Martin looked like actual babies. Aww. There's some pictures of Betty Jo where she's kind of more made up. They were probably school photos where she looks a little older. But in the crime scene photo, she looked so young. She was 15. She was a tiny baby child. Ugh. Oh, that's brutal. I know. It's super tragic. And also, to make matters worse, she was her mom's only child. Oh, poor mama. So she was like this perfect little angel baby that was her mom's only little perfect angel baby. It's it's sad. This whole story is sad, but I mean, that's horror. I mean, you know, we, we have emotional distance of time. We can, we can handle it. We have the emotional distance of time. And also, like... Don't listen to a horror podcast if you're looking for something light and bubbly. So we are talking about Paul Martin. We are talking about Betty Jo Booker. They're tiny babies. So Betty Jo Booker and Paul spent the day together. plan was that Paul would take Betty Jo to her show at the VFW, which I believe was the Veterans of Foreign Wars Club. Yes. So it's a lot like the, the Legion. Yeah. Then the plan was for him to drop her off at a friend's sleepover after that. Aw, how cute. Right? So they were done playing at like 1.30 a.m., but she never made it to the sleepover. Jerry Atkins got a call at 6 a.m. asking if he's seen Betty Jo. He says, no, I thought this other dude from the band was going to take her. He gets another call, very 
like she never showed up to the sleepover we don't know where she is meanwhile paul's body is found lying on the side of the road near spring lake park he's over a mile from his car the keys are still in it that's sketchy yep so there was blood found across the road indicating that he had actually been gunned down while trying to run away he had been shot four times in the nose through the ribs from behind in the hand and in the back of the neck wow that's a lot of different angles isn't it like nose back of the neck i mean he had been full-on running from his attacker and later police reports indicate like several times that they both of them both betty joe and paul had put up like one hell of a fight good for them so i imagine that he was shot yeah but he was running which is why you've got like back of the head, back of the neck, or back of the ribs, back of the head, in the face, in the hand. He probably put up his his hand to be like, no, don't shoot. Yeah. Which is kind of really sad. Betty was nowhere near, and volunteer teams got together to try to find her. This included a team that had left Sunday school at the First Methodist Church to help. They found her two miles away from Paul and three miles away from the car. Wow, that's so far away. Yeah, so... That's so far, like, how could you move a body that far? Wouldn't you have to voluntarily, like, wouldn't the victim have to voluntarily, like, at least move themselves? Like, I not imagine but, like, that they were both running, and that's how they got so far from the car. But, okay, so how could... So so that means that, like, they were both running in the same direction, that, um... Oh, shoot, what's his name? Um, Paul? Paul. So that means that Paul got gunned down first and Betty Jo kept running. That's my assumption. And made it an additional mile before she was shot. A mile is a long... like Two miles. Two miles from Paul. Speaking as a runner, like, a mile is a long way, let alone two miles. Oh, yeah. To make it from where, like, especially with an assailant chasing you with a gun, to make it that far? Like, that's shocking to me. I... I honestly have no idea how this happened. They clearly both put up one fuck of a fight. It's possible that he shot Paul and then walked her out into the woods, but... Walked her out another two miles into the woods? Mm -hmm. Two miles? I mean, how else would she have gotten there? Right. I guess I'm just saying, I guess it seems equally like... To me, the idea of being able to get that far, running from somebody with a gun drawn on you, is insanity but also the idea of an assailant choosing to walk somebody an additional two miles into the woods from where the first victim was shot seems really weird too. Yeah. Honestly, the, the only thing that this overtly tells me is that they definitely did give this guy like one hell of an evening. They did not give him an easy time. Yeah. But I don't actually know how this went down the the only evidence that we really have is that paul obviously dragged himself from one side of the road to the other while trying to get away yeah but how betty got two miles from paul and three miles from his car like she was the fuck out there i don't know i don't know if she ran and he managed to chase her down which seems possible but also like how did he chase her that far like how did she not lose him after two or three miles that's what i don't understand uh to, to be a mile in front of somebody is a long way oh that's a long hugely. long way and so at that point you okay so, so my thinking is this if you are close enough behind somebody 
throughout a three mile run to to be less than a mile behind them uh you should be within a shooting distance so why was she able to get that far from the car in the first place and if she was ever able to get more than a mile away from her assailant how did she not get away from him well i mean at the same time this is also the dude who told mary jean larry to run and then chased her down so it's presumably he's pretty athletic oh yeah i imagine i mean he knocked a dude out by hitting him over the head with a gun cracked his skull so fairly in shape dude i imagine but beyond that he clearly has this like enjoyment in the cat and mouse thing so it's possible that he let her get ahead and then caught up with her yeah that's that's something that i think is actually one of the more likely possibilities is that he told her to run and then actually chased her down so that means that she felt like for a little while that she was possibly free and then probably didn't try she just stayed the course right she stayed the course and tried to get as far away rather than trying to duck off one way or the other and hide she or he was chasing her that whole time oh oh that's a long time chasing her for two miles because he's a fucko so that's anywhere between 15 and 25 minutes of like depending on the terrain and whatever like thinking oh, about how fast running run. through heavy wooded areas at some point they it could have been like fucking 40 minutes that could have been 30 40 minutes of running for your life with somebody in eye shot oh my god that's so horrifying right and i can oh yeah it's pretty horrific and it makes sense as to how this became such a modern day horror staple yeah so and also betty joe had been shot both through the heart and in the face she was shot in the cheek that's interesting the same kind of gun was used to kill richard and Pollyanne. right the 32 mm-hmm. so accounts differ betty joe had most likely been raped a later police report indicated that she had been raped okay uh she was fully clothed her overcoat had been buttoned up and her hand had been placed in her coat pocket. Weird. Staging. Lots of staging. That's odd. Which is which is so fucking creepy. Uh, police finally began connecting the cases, but they still had no leads. Jerry Atkins eventually told police about Betty Joe's Alto Bundy saxophone, which had not been found at the scene. Like maybe the saxophone had been taken as a trophy? Yeah, that was sort of a potential theory. Now, it's another three weeks later. Katie Starks, 36, and her husband Virgil Starks, a uh, 37-year-old farmer, are having a quiet evening at home. They're 10 miles outside of Texarkana, but if you look at the map, okay, most of the crimes actually happened sort of on the city limits. They were sort of, like, just outside. Okay. So it's not, like, that far, but they were in, like, a rural area that wasn't Texarkana itself. Virgil had stayed up to listen to the radio and read his newspaper, and after getting him a heating pad, Katie went to get ready for bed. Katie hears glass breaking and assumes Virgil broke something. She goes to ask him to turn down the radio and she finds him dead in his chair. He had been shot twice in the head from just outside the home through the window. But this time he had been shot with a 22 rifle. Hmm. Interesting. That's like a kid's, to give perspective, that's like a kid's hunting rifle. You don't hunt, you don't hunt deer with a 22. You don't hunt, like a 22 is literally the hunting rifle you get when you're a child graduating from a BB gun to something that can emulate what it will be like to hunt a deer. Yeah. 
No, a twenty two is a tiny baby gun, and it's actually what David Berkowitz used. Too. Not a rifle, but he used a twenty two, which is why so few of his hmm, victims died. Uh, I think the I think the really interesting thing is that the twenty two was not a thirty two. Right, it's a different gun, not a handgun, and it was a yeah. rifle, not a pistol. So I'm not a hundred percent convinced that this is the same murderer, but I'm not exactly convinced that it's not. Well, it's interesting though to that age gap is exceptional. Oh yeah. So, I mean, it's still a couple, but it's not a young couple on Lover's Lane. Well, where's the sex component? Like, where's the, they're doing something they shouldn't be doing? Yeah, the, the teenager. Yeah, like, that doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. She's she's going to bed. He's hanging out, listening to the radio. Like, how is that that same MO? Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is, you know, when, I, when I've researched this, they they never go into any alternative suspects. They're always like, oh yeah, this is just a phantom killer slaying, and they they don't go into like, did this couple have any enemies? Did somebody get pissed off at Virgil or Katie? Was it a copycat? They just assumed that it was the phantom killer, and like, it's possible. I mean, this is Texas. We've got a crowd of people that probably have a big old gun supply, right? If, if today's standards hold true then. <laughs> <laughs> right. But at the same time, like, it's just not the same MO. So, I mean, no one knows. No one knows. So Katie finds Virgil dead. He's slumped in his chair. He had been shot twice. Katie runs to the crank phone to call the police, and she gets shot in the face. Oh, shit. Yeah, in the face. The killer breaks into the house, uh, and Katie, trying to evade the killer, winds up running around the house leaving a trail of blood and teeth. Wow, Katie, you tough. Yeah, right? Oh my god. (laughs) So she manages to escape her own home. She runs to her sister's house, but there's no one home. She then runs to the home of A.V. Prater and pounding on the door gets his attention. She manages to get out that Virgil's dead before collapsing on the doorstep. This part's fun. A.V. Prater shoots his rifle into the air to summon their neighbor. Like you do. Okay. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the most, like, ridiculous Texas thing you've Blam. ever heard in your entire Blam. life? Blam. Neighbors, come here. Blam. Yeah. It also possibly scared away the killer. I imagine he at least stopped chasing her. Yeah. Which is, like, good for her, right? Like Right? So, Elmer Taylor comes. Taylor drives Katie to the hospital. She manages to maintain consciousness on her way there. Katie hands her gold filling over to Taylor. Says, here, take this. That sounds like Because some... her teeth are falling out. Well, that sounds like some legitimate post-dust bowl, like, yeah, like a gold filling is valuable. Right? It's just so, like, what the fuck is happening? Her teeth are falling out, and she hands him her gold filling. So once she gets to the hospital, she immediately goes into surgery. Despite having lost a metric fuck ton of blood... She never went into shock, and she maintained a steady heart rate. Right on. Get it, girl. So, Katie is, like, the boss-assest bitch of this whole story, because that woman is tough as nails. Uh, Accounts differ, but Virgil was either found smoking in the chair where the heating pad had caught on fire, or he had fallen out of the chair and the chair had caught on fire without him in it. Either way, fire chair. Fire chair. Very close proximity to Virgil. Yeah. Not, like, Ouch. the biggest deal, but an interesting side story. Um, so I think it was an electric heating pad then. 
Mm-hmm. It is short-circuited and caught the chair on fire. Great. Yeah. So a fuckload of law enforcement set up roadblocks. And the only thing that they found was a flashlight outside the house, which ultimately no one was able to recognize. Because fingerprinting was not a thing? They couldn't, like, take prints off the flashlight? Fingerprinting was a thing, but I guess they didn't find any fingerprints. Right. There were fingerprints found throughout. I don't know what happened with them. Okay. I know that they were super smudged. Okay. But I don't think that they found fingerprints in the Starks case. I think they found them in the Betty Jo Booker case. Okay, okay. And these very well might have been different cases. Right, they could have been different assailants completely. Mm-hmm. Another thing is the police were riding back to town, you know, on their way to, like, go and write up their report. And they passed this, like, old, like, abandoned-looking car. And they didn't investigate. But they retrospectively were like, fuck, we probably should have investigated that. Oh, God, you guys. Right? At this point, Tex Arcana is freaking the fuck out. Local stores sell out of locks, guns, and ammo. People who have never owned guns sleep with one loaded on either side of the bed, and they lay out tarps and mats so that their children can sleep in the same room as them. Wow. The town willingly adopts an unofficial curfew, and people begin setting up these elaborate booby traps to ward off intruders. Hey. They've got, like, these Rube Goldberg, like, pots and pans and nails and wires wow they're real scared they're terrified i have never been in my life been so scared that i have set up like a home alone style rube goldberg device right like to imagine and i I know it's a little bit different like you know 2018 versus 1946 but to be so to be so scared for your life that yeah you don't have adt right but to be so scared for your life that you're like fuck i better string up some pots and pans so that i can hear if somebody comes onto my property to murder me, like, damn. Yeah, it scared the shit out of actually everyone. And it was just a ridiculous, everyone is scared. And there's, I don't remember if it was the Texarkana Gazette or some other newspaper, but there's like a, a picture of some lady with her like blanket, wire, pots and pans, Rube Goldberg trap. And that was published in a fucking newspaper because this is just like... wow what became status quo and also like liquor stores were shutting down early people were not selling alcohol to anybody who overtly appeared drunk like the whole town turned into a different place wow so beyond that some attempted to play vigilante of course and intentionally went to lover's lane but armed and ready there is a story of a cop coming up to a couple and announcing himself as like hey i'm officer blah 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 like are you guys aware that you shouldn't be out here right now and the girl is like i'm glad you announced who you were because i had my gun trained on you the whole time and if you hadn't announced yourself i definitely would have shot your ass hardcore tejas teenagers right right (laughs) this is all made worse by Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Ooh, Manuel. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually is like a really like decked out lawman. Mm-hmm. He's he's got like the history from Texas Rangers doing like cool shit. And at one point, he like gunned down two outlaws while they were trying to ro- like rob this hotel. Blah blah blah. He's got like this big past of like fancylawman.com. 
But these days, he's mostly just like a ladies' man with cool stories. Right, okay, fair. Go, Manuel. So he shows up and is like, I'm going to take over this case. But he really just, like, scares the shit out of civilians and, like, hits on the female reporters. In pursuit of more glory. Yeah. So when reporters ask him what civilians should do, he says, oil up their guns and see if they are loaded. Put them out of the reach of the children. Do not use them unless it is necessary. But if you believe it is, do not hesitate. Ooh, damn. Damn it, well. <laughs> so, you know, that makes it worse. He's encouraging vigilantism is what he's doing. Yes. Yep. Shortly after the Starks murders, there's a call about, like, I just saw the Starks farmhouse and there were some lights on and I think you should go and investigate. So cops show up and are like, we know you're in there. Come out. Don't you try to fight us. And Lone Wolf Gonzalez comes out with a female photographer from Life magazine and is like, I'm just showing her around so she can take some pictures of the crime scene. Uh Uh-huh. Sure, Manuel. (laughs) So he also, like, promised to stay until the case was solved. And after a while of it not getting solved, he kind of, like, just sort of slipped out of town. And ended up going to Hollywood to be basically an expert on the Texas Rangers in Texas Rangers-related media. Okay, yeah, yeah, I get that. Makes sense. Yeah, that was, that was, uh, Texas Ranger Gonzalez. He was a character. The reward money that I talked about earlier, it started at $500. It went up from, like, police and also, like, people offering money to $6,425. In 1946. That is over 83000 now. Holy God. Yeah. So they got a lot of bunk tips. And just tips. Just everything. They just got a lot of calls. Yeah, I would imagine so. Dang. That led to fucking everything. Mm-mm. So, suspects. I told you about how Jerry Atkins told police about Betty Jo's alto Bundy saxophone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, not even two weeks later, a man walks into a pawn shop. So this is between the Betty Jo Booker and the Starks case. Okay. Man walks into a pawn shop. He wants to sell an Alto Bundy saxophone. He flees when the employee goes to get the manager. <coughs> he flees. So cops track him back to his hotel room. And after hours of interrogation, they clear him. Also, they didn't find any instruments in his room. Does that satisfy you? No. Okay. I am not satisfied. In October of that year... Two men repairing a fence found a dilapidated leather case holding Betty Jo's saxophone. Oh, like I had nothing to do with it. It had just not been found. That sucks. Isn't that annoying? <laughs> How hard would that be to find, really? Like, it's by a fence, which implies that it's by a roadway. Like, I, really? I don't know. I mean, I guess basically because her body was found so far from Paul, they had just searched so much that, I don't know. I don't know. They combed the fuck out of it. They had, like, every law enforcement agency ever involved. Except for, like, the roadside and the fence line, apparently. <laughs> right? But, I mean, I guess it just... I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Like, I don't know what was going on then, but, like, shit, man. To not find a saxophone on a fence line is kind of ridiculous. Well, and also, you know, I mentioned that there was a butt-ton of police involved from a bunch of different jurisdictions, and it's great that they were all working together, like, they had the manpower, which is good, but before, like, the 1980s, the 1990s, even now sometimes, 
like police were competing with each other because they wanted to be the ones to break the story, yeah. which meant that they weren't properly communicating with each other, which meant that a bunch of cases were getting handled terribly because the police were being stubborn assholes. Yeah. I'm not going to like blame the cops in this situation, but But credit where credit is due, they probably could have communicated better. I'm sure that some of that was going on. Yeah. Most likely suspect I'm going to get into right now. Yeah, do it, do it. Okay, so Arkansas State Trooper, I believe it was Tillman, he made a connection that a car theft had coincided with the murders. So basically every time there was a murder, a car had been stolen and then abandoned later. Okay. So they decided to look into the stolen cars and they found one of them and they decided to stake that out. They found the car that had been stolen the night of the Griffin Moore murder. Okay. So they staked that out and they caught a woman trying to claim it. Her name was Peggy Swinney. And she had literally, like, within a couple of hours to a week, the accounts have differed over time. That's a pretty big time gap, but okay. No, not in this situation. Okay. Within the last not very much time, she had just married Ewell Swinney. Okay. A couple hours to a week of just being married. She had just married this guy. Yeah, yeah, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Peggy Swinney just married Ewell Swinney. She was like, oh, I thought it was my husband's car, blah, blah, blah. So he became the prime suspect. They located Yul Swinney through another stolen car that he had tried to sell. So he's a car thief? Yes. He's a car thief. He's a counterfeiter. He's got like, not like a huge violent record, but he's got a big old criminal record up until this point. So they found him through another hot car. He was arrested and he acted as if there was something more serious going on. Like he thought he was in trouble for something more serious. Yeah, so he was like, you know, are they going to give me the electric chair for this? Like, I know that you've got me for more than stealing cars. Whoa. Right? Peggy began making statements, essentially admitting that Yule had been the phantom killer. She also, like, used details that hadn't been released to the public. She said something about having thrown Paul Martin's pocketbook into the bushes, which at the time I believe only, like, one or two police officers knew about. Okay. Right, which is way different than now where people can, like, hack police databases and read about what's been going on. Like, if you know details of a crime in 1946, you're probably involved. Well, and also, like, that's a very common police tactic is, you know, they'll release just enough to the public that, you know, they can get proper tips and they can give proper, like, safety awareness but they won't release so much to the public that they can't, like, get a only the criminal would have known this for a criminal conviction. Right, right, right. That's a very common tactic. Okay. So, you know, she she gave this story that had all of these details, but her story kept changing, and she was also making a lot of inconsistencies. So she'd be like, oh, we burned the clothes here, and they were like, we went to this location, and we didn't find anything that sounded anything like that. And she was like, maybe we didn't burn the clothes. I don't remember. Huh. Okay. Do you think that's a a symptom of whatever might have been going on with her, or do you think that was a lie? I don't know. I know that she also had a criminal background, and, I mean, if she was married to a murderer, I'm sure he was lovely and abusive. Right, because there could be a lot of factors. There could be either outright lying to try and confuse police and distort the situation. But there could also be like 
a myriad of psychological or substance issues mm-hmm. that would make you not remember or not know that kind of stuff. Right. Really. And also, most of her inconsistencies involved how much she was involved in the crimes. Okay. Which kind of indicates that she was wavering back and forth with how much she wanted to implicate herself. Right, for sure. However, beyond that, because they were married, they couldn't compel her to testify against her. That's such bullshit. I don't like that law. I don't think I like that law. Which is why that whole recent marriage thing, it's not the greatest law. It's not the greatest. I do love, like, privacy protection laws, but that one... I don't think that your wife shouldn't be legally allowed to testify against you if you tell her that you murdered somebody. That's really weird to me. The, the wife is allowed to testify against you, but you are not allowed to compel her to testify against you. What does that even mean? The compel part? Like, hey, did your husband do anything shady on Saturday night? Like, is that compelling her? No, like... that, that means that the government isn't allowed to force you to testify. Oh, okay. Yeah. You can testify if you willingly testify. But the government is not allowed to force you to. Huh. Okay. Yeah. That's what, that's what the whole marriage protection law is. So yeah, they basically, I mean, beyond the fact that she couldn't testify, her testimony would have been impeachable as fuck because she kept changing her story. Right. But he was ultimately put away for car theft Hmm. and he spent most of his life in prison. But that's where that lead ended. But he, he even thought, he even thought that he would go to prison or have something worse happen to him. So like, why didn't he confess? Well, once they started interrogating him, he clammed the fuck up. Hmm. And he maintained for the rest of his life that he did not do anything involving the phantom killings. Hmm. However, in later interviews, Peggy actually did continue to implicate him as the phantom killer. Huh. So what do you think? I think it might have been him. But I'm not sure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into a few other things. Also, he died in 1994. Okay. Either way, he's dead. Woo! <laughs> right? Not exactly a great guy, even if he didn't murder people. He fucked over a lot of people. So, they, they had a bunch of suspects, so I'm gonna just highlight some of the good ones. There's the coma vet confessor. Okay. He he was a vet, like a army military vet, and he woke up from a coma and basically said, I feel like I was running for, from something. It might have been those murders. Right. Probably had a lot of guilt and a lot of, like, psychological trauma and was just like, I don't know, maybe I'm a murderer. Yeah, pretty pretty sure it wasn't him. But literally, he was like, if I didn't murder those people, then I want to go to Hollywood and become a stuntman. Because I feel better when I'm in danger. He was like, okay, dude, you do your thing. Oh, man. There was an alcoholic who confessed to a reporter for a fifth of whiskey. Uh, don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> The the cop that went and interviewed him recognized him from Texarkana and was like, you didn't do this. Why did you confess to this? And he was like, I got a fifth of whiskey. And he was like, okay, well, we're going to let you go. <laughs> uh, there was a hitchhiker who then stuck up his hitchhiker picker upper. What is that called? His hitch? His hitch? His hitch? Yeah, his hitch. Yeah. Sure. Let's anyway, go with that. The, there was a hitchhiker who got picked up and then stuck up the driver and was like, you, you know, fuck with me, I'll murder you like I did those people from Texarkana. But most likely he was just posturing. He was just trying to sound tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then there, oh, this one's a fucked up story. So there's a ba- black man whose tire tracks matched those that were outside, I think, the Pollyann Moore case. Uh-huh. Or the Starks home. They matched his tire tracks to something. 
uh, and he failed the polygraph test. So they were like, all right, well, let's hypnotize you. And the hypnotist, to prove that he was hypnotized, burned him with a cigarette and he didn't respond. Okay. So that was a thing. So not not admissible confession at all. Well, beyond that, once they had hypnotized him, they figured out that the reason he failed his polygraph was because he was having an affair with a married woman. There you go. Yes. So they figured out that he wasn't the murderer. So the last guy is a possibility. Uh, This guy's name was Henry Doody. That was his nickname. Booker Tennyson. And in a suicide note, he confessed to the murders. So it was two years after the Texarkana murders. He was a student at the University of Arkansas and he killed himself and left this weird cryptic, like, get into this box note. Uh-huh. And they were like, fuck that, we're just going to break into the box. And in the box, they found a pen which had poison on the lid. And they found the suicide note that was like, well, why did I kill myself? You would have too if you had committed two double murders. I killed Mr. Starks and I tried to kill Mrs. Starks too. I killed Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night. And I, and I did it while Mother was asleep or awake. But later, one of his friends was like, we were playing poker together that night, so... Like, weird, like, wanting glory in his last moments. It was it was a really weird... Like, and also, he had, like, a bunch of different versions of suicide notes. Like, one of them blamed him on him falling in love with his, like, landlord's 12-year-old daughter. Uh. That was fun. One of them was like, I just want to, you know, I just want mom and dad to not have to spend money on my wasted college. Wow. So. So whatever he was, he was messed up, but probably not the killer. Yeah. There are some people who think that he's the one who who killed those people, especially because one of the theories is like, oh, it was somebody from a wealthy family who was able to cover up his crimes. And then he got so guilty that he killed himself. And like, that's a nice story. Mm -hmm. But pretty unlikely and especially because i think it was the starks murder that his friend was like i was with him yeah it makes me because because i would i would believe that okay maybe yule swinney did you know all of the all of the lovers lane murders with the 32 Um, and somebody else did the starks but his friend was with him during the starks murder it is interesting that even if it's all the same guy even if it's all yule swinney the idea that he would be going after Lover's Lane and then just decide to use a different gun uh, to find somebody in their home and to have those people be 10 to 20 years older. Right. That's a very interesting shift. Yeah. It's it's not completely... So, so the psychologist that I was talking about who said, like, oh, he's a sexual sadist, blah, blah, blah. He also said he's probably going, he's probably being driven further out of town because of all of the cops. And so that's why he picked this couple. Crime of opportunity. Right. But then why no assault? Then why no assault? Then why no sexual assault? That doesn't make sense. She fucking escaped. Cause she's a boss ass bitch. Okay. Okay. Fair. Fair. I mean, she ran away from the killer while her teeth were falling out of her mouth because she had been shot in the face. Yeah. Okay. Fair. She's awesome awesome lady but still i'm not a hundred percent convinced that it was the phantom killer yeah i'm not a hundred percent convinced that it's not the phantom killer i'm just on the fence not convinced that it was either yeah well 
I managed to get this shit published on all of the things that I could think of to publish it on. So look for it there and... Look for it on all the things. And... uh, (laughs) Go for it. Something, something. I love you long time. Have a good night. Good night, listeners. <laughs> good night. Bye.